come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 194 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you is going to be my Traverse of the Threes, number 16. And for the featured reviews, it's going to be The Unheard, which is a 2023 release, I believe, or at least it's getting its wide release this year, which is featuring potential white noise and maybe a haunting, where the older movie from 43 is going to be The Mad Ghoul, which ghouls actually haunt cemeteries. So that's kind of how I'm going to do this double feature here, even though it doesn't fully work that way. But anyways, for mini reviews, though, I have Deep Red. Got to see this in the theater at the Wexner Center for the Arts. Then there's going to be The Fearless Vampire Killers. That's a potential summer series prep. There is Suspiria, another one I got to see at the theater. Then Two Evil Eyes. I originally got to see The Black Cat there and then ended up deciding to, the only way I could record it on Letterboxd was to watch the Romero segment, so that's why that's there. Then my Traverse of the Threes rewatches and now the screaming starts and then there's evil dead rise opera and an episode of tales of the walking dead so i don't think there's anything else i need to get you up to speed with here for this intro so i will say is thank you so much for listening and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me journey with a cinephile and for my first mini review is going to be a classic this is deep red goes by the original title of profondo rosso this is from 1975, written and directed by Dario Argento, and it looks like Bernardino Zapponi also helped to write this. This stars David Hemmings, Dario Nicolodi, and Gabrielli Lavia. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, after seeing the murder of a famous psychic, a musician teams up with a feisty reporter to find the killer while evading attempts on their lives by the unseen assailant, bent on keeping a dark secret buried. So this is one that I had heard about, but hadn't got around to seeing it until it came to my local theater in a 4K restoration. I have to say that I was glad that I finally saw this one because I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Now, I updated this review after a second viewing for Duncan on his show of Where to Begin with Giallo over on the T-Puts Collective. Now, I've seen this for a third time, once again at the theater, this time at the Wexner Center for the Arts, as they're doing that Dario Argento retrospective. So I will say, the first time I saw it, I wasn't all that versed in Gialli, and now I'm actually, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've seen quite a bit more and everything like that. But I think he Argento has such an interesting way of presenting this story. Now we have this cold open where we see, we're kind of just hearing somebody, it sounds like, get stabbed and murdered and everything, and there's a children's song, and then there's like a, you see some little kid's feet, and then like a bloody knife, and then we have that cold open that leads into like a psychic of Helga who is portrayed by Maka Merrill. This ends up being where our main character of Marcus Daly portrayed by Hemmings sees this attack and he ends up getting kind of pulled into doing his own investigation because of Gianna Brezzi portrayed by Daria Nicolodi who is a reporter who puts his face on the front page of the newspaper saying that he was a witness. Now something interesting about this movie though are the deaths. First off, they don't have a bunch of people getting stabbed, which can be a trope for Gialli. It does have stabbings, but it also has creativity in his deaths, which are great. The deaths create clues for our two heroes to solve the case, and I found that intriguing. What helps are the effects, which are well done. They were done practically, so it looked real for the most part, and I'm a big fan of that. Cinematography is also great, but that's a hallmark of Argento films. Now, remembering how things played out here, it allowed me to focus on making sure that things aren't cheats or anything like that, and I don't necessarily think they are, and what I just love is that there's a little piece of evidence in the very beginning of this that gives the whole movie away if you know what to look for. So another big positive of this film, though, is the soundtrack. It was done by Goblin, which is a group I'm a big fan of because of Dawn of the Dead. I listened to this score when I was writing, even before I saw this movie. Seeing how the selections fit into the scene just add atmosphere, they stand out in the best ways possible. So the final thing I want to touch on here would be the acting. I thought the two leads were great. They play well off each other. Hemmings is a musician that they mention in the synopsis. What I found interesting is that he's also quite sexist though, which I can't fault him too much for the time that this was set. Now, this bothers me even after multiple watches. I'm not, not a big fan of him in general. Nothing to do with Hemmings. What I was impressed with though is Nickelodeon's character. She is empowered and doesn't take much from Marcus. She is forward with him and makes her kind of a modern woman. This is something Argento uses and it makes him an even interesting, like an even more interesting filmmaker for me. I know there's a lot of people that put him in the camp of being misogynistic. I personally don't find that to be a case, but he does have things that are problematic. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. So in conclusion, I think this might be my second favorite Argento film, even though it might be the best made by him overall. This is a complex story that unfolds nicely and kept me guessing until the end. To couple with that is we have good acting. The editing just keeps us moving along and building the tension. The deaths were different and great. The gore was good and the effects were too. The blood does look more like paint and it's a little bit too orange, but I have a soft spot for that. The score is also great and just helps build the atmosphere. If you're a fan of Gialli, I would recommend this as this is one of the best in the genre that I've ever seen. But this is just a great film in general as well. So my rating here for Deep Red is going to be a 10 out of 10 after, you know, three viewings. Pretty sure the last viewing it came up to that one, but just kind of wanted to say that it still has stayed at that rating as a masterpiece. And then for my second mini review here is going to be my potential summer series pick. This one from 1967 of the Fearless Vampire Killers. It looks like this title was actually made for the United States was Dance of the Vampires, but this is directed by... Roman Polanski, who also wrote this. Now, he came up with the story with Gerard Brock. 
This stars Jack McGrowan, Polanski, as well as Elfie Bass. This is a comedy horror film that is from a co-production of the United Kingdom and the United States. Currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being, a noted professor and his dim-witted apprentice fall prey to their inquiring vampires while on the trail of the ominous damsel in distress. So this is a movie that I learned about years ago. I know it appeared in the Fangoria Top 300 Horror Movies issue that I have, and I guess it also was in the Horror Show Guide Encyclopedia that I'm working through. It has been on my list for some time, and I'm now getting around to see it as a potential summer series pick, as I said. That would be for the podcast Under the Stairs. So I'm going to go a little bit lighter here on my thoughts, but this one feels like it's a precursor to things like Return of the Living Dead. We have a horror comedy, but I would almost say... It's listed as a comedy first on IMDb. For me, I think it does well in giving us the horror elements with just elements of comedy working alongside it. But this one loosely bases itself from elements of Dracula. Instead of Jonathan Harker coming to Count Dracula to do his business, we have Professor Ambrosius? Ambrosian? I don't know how to say his name, but regardless... He's actually portrayed by McGrowan, who I know from The Exorcist, and then Alfred is Polanski. Now, they are trying to prove that vampires exist, because the professor has been laughed out of rooms of his colleagues, but it excites him when he sees elements like garlic being hung around this inn that he appears in that's in Transylvania, and then the two end up at the castle of Count von Krolock, who is portrayed by Ferdy Main. Now, they're welcomed in, and they suspect he's a vampire, but they try to play it off like they don't. Professor Abrasis is an expert on bats, and he puts his foot in his mouth, and then he has to play it off with the Count. And I thought that was kind of a good time that we have there. So then, this one delves more into the classic lore here. We have, like, sunlight kills these creatures, they fear garlic and crosses, they don't cast reflections in mirrors. There's a fun gag with this at the Midnight Ball that I enjoyed. You know, driving a stake through their heart will kill them, they turn people when they bite, and then they have super strength. I can work with all what we get here as it sticks to these type of things. And they aren't the brightest individuals, our characters, but that's getting back to the comedy. So I'm going to go next would be the elephant in the room potentially for some listeners out there. I know Polanski's criminal history. I'm overlooking it, and I'm also just enjoying this movie as a work of art. He's made excellent films, and even though I don't condone what he did, I'm not going to deprive myself of enjoyment. That might be callous, but it is what it is, as I have not seen Polanski do a comedy like this before, though. Just kind of want to get that out there. I like that our two leads and other characters are build, are bumbling, but it isn't over the top. There are things that also happen that are played for laughs. I didn't necessarily find it funny, but I did think it was clever. I'll give credit for the bleak ending that we have, because that was something else I was not necessarily expecting. Then over to the acting, I thought McGrowan was good. I didn't recognize him as the professor. I had done finding it out when I was looking at the cast list. I thought he has a good bumbling take on Van Helsing. Polanski is solid as our mind old mannered, you know, apprentice. He doesn't speak a lot, but he's timid and that causes issues. I thought he fit that role. I thought Bass was fine as he brings some comedy to his over-the-top performance as the innkeeper. Maine was good as our master vampire. I liked Ian Query, who is the son of the Count. He does that arrogant role well. I also thought that Terry Downs was good as our like hunchback servant. Well, it's kind of eerie that this is the movie that Sharon Tate and Polanski met in. She's quite beautiful. Her role is limited, but it works well into the frame of the story. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast was fine with rounding this off for what was needed. All that's left would be filmmaking. I thought the best thing about this was the setting. This old, dark castle they end up in is great. 
just has that gothic feel, and I love that. The snowy landscape feels cold, and the village is quaint. thought the cinematography was good. It captures and helps bring in some of these settings to life, the best sequence being the Midnight Ball. And we also have, during that one, the Professor and Alfred pretend to be vampires. The effects are limited, but the look of the fangs are good. Having our humans show up in the mirror is a good touch when the monsters don't. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this is a movie that I wasn't necessarily getting what we got. This is a gothic horror movie that has some comedic aspects. I thought this worked well together, as this almost feels like a Hammer film now that I'm actually thinking about it. We also get some variations on Dracula, and I enjoyed that. The acting was good. No one necessarily stands out, though. They feel like the characters they're taking on, which is all I ask for. This was a well-made from the settings to the effects. If you like horror from the era, I would recommend this one, as I think it's a solid blend of horror with comedy, in my opinion. So like I said, not going to give my rating, but I definitely enjoyed my time here with the Fearless Vampire Killers. Or there's like this alternate little title they have, or but pardon me, but your fangs are in my neck or something along those lines. I thought that was quite funny as well. And then up next for you is going to be another one from Dario Argento, and that's going to be Suspiria. This is the original from 1977. It is directed by Dario Argento, who co-wrote this with Daria Nicolodi. And this was also, I believe, Thomas D. Quincy also helped out there. This stars Jessica Harper, Stefania Cassini, and Flavio Bucci. This is a horror film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, an American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize that the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of ghastly murders. So this is one that if you want to hear a mini review, I covered this on episode number 41, which was Journey Through the Aughts number 15, as that had Jigoku and Host as the two featured reviews over there. And just trying to make sure that I didn't cover it on a bonus episode. Nope. But I know Jamie actually, I believe, watched it with me that time. I think that was where I finally convinced her to check this out with me. She wasn't the biggest fan, which still hurts my soul. But this is a movie that I didn't see until I was entering my 30s, and since then I've seen it a lot. It is one that I've seen in the theater on film and 4K, which this most recent time here was on 4K. Suspiria is one that I've shown to two of my significant others, including my wife of Jamie. But Argento, who you know is a co-writer and director here, did something different as he steps out of Gialli. And this is the element of the investigation that he uses here, but this is his first stab at doing a supernatural movie. Now what we get here is Susie Banyan, portrayed by Harper, coming to Germany to attend a dance academy, and that night she arrives at Storming. She refused access by a voice through the intercom on the door, but she also meets with a woman who flees into the night, and that woman gets murdered. Now Susie is then thrown into a weird school that harbors a secret with its teachers. Really didn't need to give you that like more fleshed out version of the synopsis, but I'm biased with this movie. I love it. During my first couple of viewings, I was just so engrossed with the cinematography and the lighting, also with the deaths that we got. It wasn't until subsequent viewings that I started to pay more attention to the story. I used to think that it was lacking, but that's not necessarily the case anymore, especially after this most recent viewing. But to bring back up what I was saying with Argento, and that this is something a bit new from him at the time. I've seen this debate as to whether this is a giallo or not. It isn't. I do know people like to get a rise out of others by saying it, and I can see why it's considered though. How the investigation plays out with the movie in that subgenre, it's very similar. We get Susie trying to find out what happened to Pat Hingle, portrayed by Ava Axon. Now, others go missing and strange things happen, like Susie becoming ill. Now, she isn't a police officer, but she also can't remember an important piece of information or why it's important to solve everything. 
So that's a, a classic Argento trait. Now, even though I enjoy the story more now that I understand it, that doesn't mean that this isn't a beautiful piece of cinema. Argento knows how to shoot a movie. His use of lighting is top-notch here. There are scenes that I would print off and just hang on my wall. It is that good. Now, there's also this element of the fairy tale that he captures. This was originally supposed to be younger girls, but what he wanted to do required adults. And actually, I was reading up about it, is that Dario's father, who helped fund this of Salvatore, said that he couldn't do it with children. Now, having the doors be large creates that atmosphere. Then there's the score. Goblin is so eerie in what they do, and this is one of my favorite soundtracks. So there's not much more I want to say, so this is just a masterpiece. The filmmaking behind it is up there. Understanding more about the story and seeing the progression there solidifies that. I recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike. It could be a bit too violent for those that don't enjoy this type of cinema, but how well this is done in grounding it while mixing in the nightmare logic makes this a masterpiece in my opinion. So, I mean, if you couldn't tell from everything that I keep saying about this one, I have Suspiria 1977 as a 10 out of 10. And something else I got to check out is Two Evil Eyes. goes by the original title of Due Ochi Diabolici, maybe? I think that's how you might say that. But this is from 1990. This was co-directed between Dario Argento and George A. Romero. It was written by Dario Argento, Franco Farini, and Romero. This stars Adrian Barbeau, Harvey Keitel, and Rami Zada. Now, that's a little bit misleading because those are all in the Romero section of this. But this is a horror film that is a co-production of Italy and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a... 3.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being two horror tales based on short stories by Edgar Allan Poe and directed by two masters of horror. A greedy wife kills her husband, but not completely. The other is a sleazy reporter adopts a strange black cat. So this was a film that I remember one of the deaths, but didn't realize that it belonged to this film. I caught it on the movie channels growing up. I'm a big fan of both directors, so it's been on my radar for some time ahead of that first viewing. Just never got around to seeing it until it came to the theater. It made itself as part of my 31 Days of Halloween, thanks to a local theater, as I was saying. I also got to see Argento's short again in 4K on the big screen, and I ended up watching my DVD for the Romero one due to the completionist that is within me. So what I'm going to say is that this isn't the best film from either of these amazing directors, but I still find it quite interesting to see both taking on Poe classics. Not only that, but they do their own spin and they make it modern, which I think is an interesting choice for different reasons with each segment. Now, I know that I've read both stories, but I don't really remember all the aspects, if I'm going to be honest. What I like about the facts of the case of Dr. Vladimir, which is the Romero one, is that they deepen the story and we include his wife who is trying to rob him while he's on his deathbed. Having the doctor in on it also helps here and introduces the horror of the story where Mr. Vladimir dies while he's under hypnosis. should say that is portrayed by Bingo O'Malley. Now, one of the scariest aspects here is that they're talking to him from beyond the grave, and he's stuck in a suspended animation for his mind. I've seen the death scene that ends this one. I didn't realize it until viewing this, where it came from, but this one is definitely creepy in the end. should also say that his young wife is Adrian Barbeau, and his doctor is Zada. Now, on the other side, I'll give credit to Argento for his choice to include a bunch of Poe references, like he is naming the character of Roderick Usher, portrayed by Keitel, as well as having... Elo, Nora, and Mr. Pym, and Annabelle, who are all characters in other stories. We get the pendulum death here as well, and there's also elements of the telltale heart, should say, just kind of looking at it, that we have Annabelle is portrayed by Madeline Potter. 
Mr. Pym is portrayed by Martin Baslam. And then Eleonora, trying to see if I can find, is Sally Kirkland. So, to get into the meat of this story, originally I had issues with the pacing, as it felt like Argento was just doing what he could to pad this out. That's not how I feel, having seen it a second time. It sets up Usher, and that he isn't a nice guy. The Easter eggs are throughout for Poe fans. We get to see Usher fall into madness, trying to cover up what he did. It doesn't help when he gets nosy neighbors here, like Mr. and Mrs. Pym. Should say that his wife is portrayed by Kim Hunter. There's also Christian, portrayed by Holter Graham, who is hounding Usher to know what happened to Annabelle. The deeper he sinks, the sloppier he gets. I thought that worked. Now, shifting from there, I did want to delve a bit more into the pacing. This clocks in at about two hours, and I think that's a good length total. It gives both directors the leeway to make a short that runs about 60 minutes, and you could technically show both as their own solo endeavor with how long each really is, and I can confirm that having watched these days apart. Now, for the most part, though, I think that they both work well with the facts of, in the case of Dr. Vladimir working better for me. Both do introduce our characters and get the crux of the issue quickly, and I think both endings have a wrinkle at the end that worked for me as well. As for the acting, I thought it was strong overall. I like to see Barbeau here. She embodies this character. I'll definitely be honest is that the first thing I ever saw her in was Creepshow, so I was always seeing her as that rough and mean character because of it. We get to see that to a lesser degree, but we also get to see have some remorse as well. I thought that Zada was solid as this doctor. He is arrogant, which his profession kind of fits, and the like look and works of the character. I thought that O'Malley makes it creepy and we get to fun see cameos here by eg marshall as well as tom atkins and anthony DeLeo jr for the other story Kaitel was great as our lead i believe that he's losing his mind and compensating with alcohol on top of that he does have a bit of pretension for him and his character's profession i thought that potter we have john amos kirkland hunter baslam graham a cameo by tom savini and even a young julie benz rounded this out for what was needed Something I wasn't worried about were the effects, as it was interesting to see this came out in 90, as it definitely has that weird feel of the 80s that was transitioning into this new decade. From what I could tell, everything was done practical and it looked good. From the frozen body of Ernest to the shadow men for the first story were good. The creepy cats and the body found on the wall are bright spots for the second. Didn't have any issues there and I thought it all looked good. Both films have good cinematography, but I expect that from both directors as well. And the last thing I'm going to go into would be the soundtrack. Not going to lie, I was slightly disappointed because I saw the name Pino Dinaggio and that excited me. The soundtrack overall didn't stand out and I just was expecting a bit more. It does fit for what was needed though and I won't hold that against us too much. What was good, though, was sound design. We have the cats meowing through the walls, or hearing Mr. Vladimir's voice when he's supposed to be dead was creepy. Props are there for sure. So, in conclusion, this was a solid effort from two masters of horror adapting the stories of the great Poe with a modern twist. I did think that the Romero story was stronger of the two, and it might be partially that the black cat has been done quite a bit. This is more faithful than some adaptations, though. I still think both bring up some good social issues and we get good acting across the board. Both build tension and have good effects, and I wanted a bit more from the soundtrack, but it did fit for what was needed. Sound design here makes up for it, and I'd recommend this to fans of Poe or either of these directors for sure. So my rating for, the, for Two Evil Eyes is going to be an 8 out of 10. And my next mini review is going to be And Now the Screaming Starts. This is one that I watched quite a while ago, and I'm now giving it a rewatch. But this is from 1973, so it's my Traverse of the Threes pick. And then this was directed by Roy Ward Baker. This was written by Roger Marshall. And it looks like David Case also did a little bit with that. This stars Peter Cushing, Herbert Lom, and Patrick McGee. Loosely, I would say that. But this is a horror film from the United Kingdom. Currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being England, 1795. 
the young Catherine, who has married Charles Fen Griffin and moves into his castle, she becomes a victim of an old curse that lies in the family. On her wedding night, she is raped by a ghost and becomes pregnant. So this is actually my first foray into the Amicus horror films back in the day. What is interesting is that this is a different from most of what they put out. I originally saw this one when I was working through my, the horror show guide encyclopedia, which I mean, I'm still working through that, but decided to give it a rewatch. And where I want to start is that this is something I've brought up about Amicus is they're known for their anthology horror films. And this was them doing a period piece to contend with Hammer, who specialized in these. I don't know if it fully works, but there are things that aren't implied enough. I do think that the year this came out pot was part of the reason there. I should also say that Catherine is portrayed by Stephanie Beecham and then Charles is portrayed by Ian Ogilvie. So I want to start with some positives here. This is a solid period piece. It feels like it, the era that's set. I like the gothic feel to the story. What is interesting is that the ghost here is a villain. That's not something you normally get with gothic style stories. But a good thing is that you can see that they are bad for a good reason. The true villain is Henry, who is portrayed by Lom. And what he did to Silas's grandfather. I should say Silas is portrayed by Jeffrey Whitehead. And he also plays the grandfather. But Charles isn't bad outside of not believing his wife. So then, like, the victim in all this is Catherine and then Sarah, portrayed by Sally Harrison. She was married to Silas's grandfather. A problem that I have is that the ghost isn't doing anything for good. It is getting its revenge on an innocent. I don't truly feel that Henry is punished, but since he's passed away by this point, it is a problematic revenge for me. But there isn't a lot to the story, so let me pull in some other elements here. What is interesting is the acting. We have stars here that have worked with Hammer making cameos. Before getting to them, Beecham and Ogilvy are good as our stars. The panic and terror that the former goes through is great, and I feel horrible for her. Ogilvy is someone that I don't really like, especially his lack of caring, to be honest. I did like seeing Peter Cushing, Herbert Lom, McGee, and Guy Rolf here. I'll also credit Whitehead as well as Jillian Lind and Harrison and the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. So then lastly would be the filmmaking. I do think this is well made. The castle is great setting. I can feel the history there and if any place would be haunted it would be one like this. Cinematography is fine. That doesn't do a lot to stand out to me but the effects are limited. What they do with the ghosts are good. These are superimposed or just having them be like behind a window. The chopped off hand is fine. I would say the makeup for the specters was creepy. Other than the soundtrack and design were fine and you know without necessarily standing out to me. And then in conclusion, I do think this is a solid period piece from Amicus. What I find interesting is that for a gothic tale, the ghosts are usually good or trying to reveal things. This film features an array of characters who are different shades of gray, aside from the victims. It does have a problematic on who you should root for there. The acting is good. Aside from the cameos, Beecham was a bright spot for me. This is a well-made enough. I did like the makeup of the ghosts leading here. Not a great film. I can only recommend this to those that are fans of the era of cinema and period pieces. So my rating for And Now the Screaming Starts is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Then up next is going to be a little bit of a short one here as I got to rewatch Evil Dead Rise. This is you know, streaming on Max now, so I decided to give this one a rewatch for to see where it would fall with a second watch. But this is from here in 2023. This was written and directed by Lee Cronin. It stars Lillian Sullivan, Nell Fisher, and Alyssa Sutherland. This is a horror film. That is from a co-production of Ireland, New Zealand, and United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a twisted tale of two estranged sisters whose reunion is cut short by the rise of flesh-possessing demons, thrusting them into a primal battle for survival as they face the most nightmarish version of family imaginable. So this is one that if you want to hear a featured review, I'll direct you to episode 182, which was Traverse of the Threes number 5. I had this paired up with The Crying Woman, which... Actually, kind of made for an interesting double feature as we have females in predominantly like important roles, and they might also be the villains. So for this one, after a second watch, I still think this is a fun and gory reimagining of a classic. This feels like it's borrowing the dark elements of the original series and combining those of the brutality to the previous remake. I don't mind this setting up the new lore. What I did hear was that this is going to be a sequel of sorts. I don't think that's the case, but I, we, unless we get another one to bridge that, something I didn't even bring up was that the setting of this high-rise, one drawback is that I feel like they should have utilized this more with like the floors. I digress there. I did feel like this has a good reason for a limited cast. The performances are good. The effects are on point, and this is well-made. I just enjoyed my time here, and I was actually debating in my head whether I like this more than the other remake, and actually, I'm kind of thinking that I like them very similar for similar reasons. So after the second watch for Evil Dead Rise, I have this sitting at an 8 out of 10. Then my last feature that I'm going to do here as a mini-review is going to be Opera. This is from the year of my birth, 1987. This is directed by Dario Argento, who also co-wrote this with Franco Farini. This stars Christina Marcellich, Ian Charlson, and Urbano Barberini. Should also say that Dario Nicolodi makes an appearance as well. But this is a crime horror mystery thriller film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a 3.6 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being. A young opera singer is stalked by a deranged fan bent on killing the people associated with her claim her for himself. Or themselves. Ooh. So this is a film that I watched originally on DVD with my mother while I was visiting my hometown. We both enjoyed this one, but I hadn't seen it since. Oddly, when I got into podcasts, this was one that seemed to have a section of fans. I was excited that I got to see this on 4K at the Wexner Center for the Arts, so the second watch was on the big screen. So for this one here, where I want to start is that I want to commend Argento and Farini. They took elements of Phantom of the Opera and incorporated it into this. An example is how this starts. We have this diva who gets mad and storms out. She is injured, so Betty steps in. The killer wants her to be a star. That's where it ends, but I thought that was still clever. Now, we get a typical giallo from here. I don't mean that as a slight. Betty has murders happening around her. She is convinced that she is the prime suspect, so she investigates. I can't blame her there. Though everyone knows she isn't doing it. We also get the classic trope that Argento likes where she needs to remember something to piece everything together. Her, in this case, has this nightmare that is reoccurring and that factors in. The killer wears black gloves, but they also put plastic bags over them as a secondary precaution. Now, we also have the pseudoscience here, to my knowledge, that with crows and them holding a grudge. I thought that was a cool scene that they kind of use there regardless. So there's a negative that I have here, though. This movie tries to be too clever with its ending. I was going to go deeper into my issue there, but I don't. I just don't like how it ended, and I don't want to spoil anything. There was a good spot, and this decides to keep going. What I will say is that this movie is Argento calling out critics. The director of the play of Marco, who is portrayed by Charlson, 
was a horror movie director. Now he gets panned with things that he's doing and it makes him ornery. I appreciated that. I also like the reveal of the killer. This was one that I couldn't remember, but I had it narrowed down to two people. So I can't give myself credit for being right due to that I was still kind of convinced until they revealed it. So I'm not sure there's more for the story that I want to go into. So let's go over to the acting. I thought that Marcelich, who is Betty, I thought she was solid as our lead. Before seeing this, I could have sworn from the posters that it looked like Argento's daughter of Asia. Now, when you see things play out, you know it most definitely isn't. I like her as a singer who's a bit different and trying to survive. If anything, she's a bit manic, and that plays into the story. Charleston is solid as this director and de facto Argento himself. Now, we also have Urbano Barberini, who I know from Demons. He's Inspector Al Santini. I don't personally think that he works well in this character, and I just don't think he's old enough, but I digress, though. Other than that, Nicolodi. We also have Coralina... Cataliti Tassoni. I like her. She's from Demons 2. I'd also say William McNamara was good. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So what's all left would be the filmmaking. I thought that the cinematography was great. Argento goes a bit experimental with things here, and I don't think it all works. The POV of the bird as it flies around to reveal the killer was interesting. We also get these cuts to the brain that don't work for me. What did, though, were the effects. They were practical, and I appreciated that. The soundtrack also isn't my favorite. I know Claudio Simonetti from Goblin and Bill Wyman from Rolling Stones worked on it. It doesn't hurt the movie. They kind of go with this, like, heavy, like, rock that I just don't know if, know if it works. I d it just doesn't stand out like others. So, in conclusion, I'm glad that I came back to this one. This Gialli has an interesting premise. Taking elements of Phantom of the Opera and making it into a murder mystery is fun. I'm not fully sure if it comes together though. I do think the acting is good. We get solid effects and cinematography does different things. I love the way the killer makes Betty watch and how that factors in. This is a solid effort from, from Argento in my opinion. So my rating here for Opera has actually come down from the last time that I've actually rated it and I have it now at a 7 out of 10. My last mini review is going to be for La Donna. This is actually the last episode of Tales of the Walking Dead. I finally, you know, knocked this little series off here, but this one is directed by Deborah Campmeyer. It was written by Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adler. It stars Daniela Padilla, Danny Ramirez, and Julie Carmen. This one is a haunting tale of apocalypse, traumatized couple who may or may not have tormented by a haunted house, frightened memories coupled with inexplicable inexplicable phenomena in the house take a toll on the couple's psyche and their relationship so this is one where we have a couple seeking the aid and a place to stay and it turns out the person they're going to end up with is a witch should say the couple is idalia is padea and then we have eric portrayed by ramirez and Ladonna alma is carmen so they the girl lies to the old lady the guy gets upset because they won't let them stay and they, she has this big house and everything like that and the old woman ends up dying because of just kind of falling over and everything like that so she ends up feeling guilty staying there where he is kind of just let, like falling into it but this place could be haunted or is it really just her guilt as we see different things where she sees the specter of alma in the basement she also might see crucifixes come into life there's also a weird a bird saying some weird stuff that eric notices so we also kind of see they might be harboring guilt because they've killed people on their way, not just walkers. Could this be all in their head or is this like a ghost kind of messing with them and everything like that? I thought this one was kind of on par with most of this like series and I gave it a 6.5 out of 10. I actually gave the whole series, this whole like first season a 6.5 overall. So that's all I have for mini reviews then for you. Let me get you over then to the trailer of my first featured review.
This is a stage one clinical trial. Right now, hearing loss is irreversible. The purpose of this study is to change that. I know you. Your name's Chloe, right? We used to play together as kids. My mom left when I was eight. Disappeared. It's the last time I remember really hearing anything. I still hear her voice. We look for your mom. It was really hard to do. This place, it does things to you. I think something's wrong with the procedure. I'm hearing things. Things that aren't there. It's getting worse. What are you hearing right now? And for my first feature review is going to be The Unheard. This is from 2023. It was directed by Jeffrey A. Brown. It was written by Michael Rasmussen and his brother Sean Rasmussen. This is starring Lachlan Watson, Nick Sandow, and Brandon Meyer. While also featuring Sharoni... Or no, Shunori Ramathan... Michelle Hicks, Jake Evie, Nancy Catton, Boyan Balta, Delasha Singleton, Siosi Ofi, Devin E. Hawk, Michelle D. Violetta, Mill Maglin Morales, Frankie Terrell, Bill Sage, and Beckett Guest. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being Chloe Graydon, who is portrayed by Watson, undergoes a, an experimental procedure to restore her hearing. She begins to suffer from auditory hallucinations related to the vanishing of her mother. So before I get into the movie, let me do like my intro here and then do some featured notes. And this is one that it looked interesting to me when I was looking for a 2023 releases on Shudder. I had this solicit check out, and you know, if I couldn't make it to the theater, I had at least this stockpile. What I knew was that this dealt with white noise, so I wanted to see what they would do with the concept. But I came into this one blind and decided to go ahead and you know make this a featured review. So I'll start with our director of Brown. Now he's helmed three films, and I've seen two of them. His first was that I've seen was The Beach House, which was an interesting little piece of cinema. His only other work was a horror short called Sulfuric that I have not seen. Then to our writers, they are, of course, the Rasmussen brothers. They've written everything together. It looks like Michael and Sean have seven works, and I've seen three. All are in genre with The Ward, Crawl, and then this. I have not seen Long Distance, Dark Feed, or The Inhabitants. They also have the upcoming Meet Jimmy as well. Then moving to our cast, I'll start with Watson. She has six works, and I've only ever seen this. This would be her only one that's in genre. Now her co-star of Sandow is someone who has been in 34 films. 
I've seen three of them. Out of Horror, I've seen The Sitter and Swim Fan. That one's a little bit of a thriller that kind of borderlines on it, but this would be his first one in genre. And then last, I look at Mayer. I knew he looked familiar as I've seen him in The Guest and Color Out of Space, but he has 31 movies and I've seen three now. It looks like none of the ones outside of this are considered horror, which shocks me that I've seen. But he was in the Fear the Walking Dead, Flight 462. I kind of remember this short coming out, but I didn't see it. Um, he was also in Unfollowed and The Friendship Game, and I've not seen either of those movies at this time. So then to get in the movie itself, I'll go back to the synopsis here, is that Chloe is our lead. Now, she lost her hearing due to meningitis as a child. What we will learn is that that also put her into a coma. When she came out of it, her mother was gone, as was her hearing. We see her as she volunteers for an experimental treatment as a like a trial run that they're doing with it. So this is led by Dr. Lynch, portrayed by Ramanathan. Now, they use stem cells to stimulate the growth of the damaged part of her ear. So then, Chloe is struggling with not knowing what happened to her mother. That's, you know, for an understandable reason. Now, her and her father have been unable to sell the house that they had in Cape Cod due to this because her mother disappeared from there. And, I mean, there's just so much memories and everything kind of built up there, so they really don't want to sell the place off or anything like that. So there are VHS tapes that are being kept in the closet of this place, and Chloe heads to this house to recover from her treatment, also for some closure. So she ends up starting to watch these home videos that I just brought up. She notices as well that there was someone in a house that is on the other side of the lake watching her. Now, this is a big deal because it's supposed to be the off-season, and most people are have gone either back to the city, and these aren't really houses. Like, this house that she is looking at doesn't normally have somebody in it. So the hot water isn't working, so Chloe's father reaches out to Hank, portrayed by Sandow. Now, he comes out to take a look. We learn later that he was a police officer when Chloe's mother disappeared. He is now a handy person and the local harbor master. He is fond of Chloe and wants to help her. She also runs into Joshua, portrayed by Mayer. Now, the two of them were friends when they were children. They talk, and he even takes her to his mother, who is Ellen, portrayed by Balta. Now, she actually used to watch Chloe when she was a little girl. Uh, actually, she says it goes back to being like a toddler. And it sounds like she was also friends with Chloe's mother. So there's some positive developments from this experimental treatment. Chloe can hear the television and the tapes that she is watching among other things. She isn't sure if it's a hallucination, though, with some of the things she's hearing from the tapes. She thinks that she can hear her mother when putting her ear to the floor. First it starts upstairs, and then it goes downstairs that she kind of notices it gets louder. Chloe is determined to find the truth. There also seems to be a history of young women disappearing in the area. Chloe gets warned to watch out for Joshua as there's just something off about him and his mother. Whatever is happening to cause these young women to disappear seems to happen to Megan, who is portrayed by Canteen, as she closes up a local store. So that's really my recap and introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that I actually read the synopsis as I was getting ready to hit play. So this made me think we were getting a variation on the movie like White Noise. You could say that's the case. There is communication from beyond the grave through a television, VHS tapes, and there could also be more involving this isolated house. That kind of hard to talk about but there could be something like there might almost be like a like a rip in the fabric of our world maybe but i'll admit this fascinates me even though it's not doing anything necessarily new with it the static screen like the white f 
fuzzy snow is something I grew up with, and thanks to things like Poltergeist, it makes me feel uncomfortable leaving it on too long. So now that I have that set up, let me delve into our lead character here of Chloe. I like the explanation as to why she talks like she does. She learned to talk and then lost her hearing when she was a child. She kept up with speech therapy, which allows someone who doesn't have this ailment to portray the character. I bought into it at once. What I also like is the use of technology here. Chloe didn't want to learn sign language. I'm guessing she knows enough to get by and understand, but she uses her phone to allow those people that can hear to talk and then she reads what they say. So it's kind of cool this app that she has. Now she talks back to them to respond like normal. Now as she gains back her hearing, there's a side effect that she might be hearing things that aren't necessarily there. We are flirting with her maybe descending into madness or depression. There's also a subplot that gets introduced that doesn't necessarily go anywhere with her questioning her sexuality as well. So this movie is carried by her. I should say that before moving to what I want to explore next. I'm not sure this fully knows the story that it wants to tell. So I'll give credit. It does bring up all the threads and you know ties them all together, which is a good thing. I've already brought up the potential supernatural aspect, but this is exploring how Chloe's mother could be communicating to her through old Holden movies. I'll say the mother is played by Michelle Hicks. This could be explained by the treatment and the medication she is taking as well. There's also this idea that she is a medium and susceptible to ghosts. Again, the treatment could be the explanation as well. There's also this high number of women that disappear in the area. We get a scene where a woman is murdered. Joshua then comments to Chloe about how she disappeared. The last part I think we lose for a long stretch. And I thought that it was right there before the reveal that we get the truth. So it focuses a lot on the supernatural and haunting, but I don't know if it explores enough of these other subplots to fully work for me, especially because this thing with women disappearing becomes a focal by the end of it. And I just think it's a little bit of a misstep. So there isn't much more for the story that I want to go into. So let me go over to the acting. I've already said that Watson was good and carries this. Everyone is pushing her to where she ends up. I thought that Sandow was good as his father figure that takes a liking to her. The more that we get to know him, the more interesting he becomes. Mayer is good as his potential suspect. He questions Chloe about things, but I realize he didn't have all the information. Ramathan is good as a doctor. I liked what they do with Hicks as the mother. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. All that's left to go into would be the filmmaking, since there isn't any trivia that I could find, so I'll start with the video stuff that we get. The tapes are warped. It was annoying, but I do have to admit, I don't necessarily have an issue. This is supposed to be filmed in the 90s as my guess, just kind of gauging her age and this being in the modern day and the present and everything. The tapes would have been at the tail end of their existence. There's a good chance they could be molded, as they wouldn't have been stored in a way to protect them. And I mean, you also have changing of weather here because it is in the Atlantic Northeast New England area. I'd say the cinematography other than that was good. It didn't necessarily stand out. And I'll also bring back up the tapes. There are these ethereal voices of ghosts and like a humming. I like what they're doing here. And when we are following Chloe before we are here, her hearing is restored even a slightly bit. We can we can't hear anything. They transition as well. Like if we're going to go follow another character for like a few moments or something like that, the noise in the just surrounding area will come back. And I was impressed by this. That's a strong move in how they used it. So in inclusion, I like the use of white noise that is used. 
we have a good story elements with Chloe being deaf and the struggles that come with it there. How her hearing comes back might be her link to the other side. Her performance is good with the rest of the cast pushing her to where she ends up. I'd even say this is made well enough with the sound design being the strongest aspect. I just think there are too many threads that don't get explored enough. This caused me to lose interest and I think with the runtime it was a bit boring for me. We needed a stronger mystery or more investigation for it to work better. This is still worth a viewing in my opinion, but just not necessarily a high priority. And so I would say that the Unheard is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. So I'm not going to do a spoiler section for this movie. I don't necessarily think I need that. So let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Understand me? Answer me. I understand you. Good. I'm your friend. Your only friend. You're ill. You need me. I alone can cure you. You'll do everything I say. Everything you say? You'll devote your life to science. I will make you well, I will make you famous, but you will forget Isabel. Forget Isabel? Isabel doesn't want you. She doesn't love you. It's me she loves. Do you understand? Isabel loves me. Isabel loves you. Now, Ted, you stay here. Do you understand? Stay here. Stay here. Stay. And for my second featured review is going to be The Mad Ghoul. This is from 1943. This was directed by James P. Hogan. This was written between Brenda Weisberg and Paul Gaglian. While also having, looks like Hans Crawley was the person who came up with the original story. This stars David Bruce, Evelyn Onkers, and George Zuko. And this also features 
Turhan Bay, Robert Armstrong, Milburn Stone, Andrew Toombs, Rose Hobart, Addison Richards, Charles McGraw, Lillian Cornell, Bess Flowers, Gus Glassmere, Chuck Hamilton, Hans Herbert, Lou Kelly, Isabel Lamal, and Mike Lolly. This is an horror music sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States. Should point out here that this is a lesser talked about universal film as well. It is sitting at a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a university chemistry professor experiments with an ancient Mayan gas on a medical student, turning the would-be surgeon into a murdering ghoul. So this is one that I found when I was looking for horror from 1943. As I said, this is a lesser talked about universal film that I owned in a box set that made it easy to seek out, of course. Now settling into watches when I was pleasantly surprised to see that Ankers, Zuko, and Bay were all making appearances here since I've seen them in other things. So then, actually, let me go into some of these people here that are behind this film, and I'll start with our director of Hogan. This is the first film from him that I've seen. It looks like he specialized in, like, spy or crime films around a character of Bulldog Drummond. It, like, I know when I was just looking at the letterbox for him, it looks like there was, like, in his top, like, eight, there was at least, like, five or six of the titles included this character. But total, he helmed 45. This is the only one that I've seen as well as I, I, well, I just said that. But it's the only one that was done in horror. Now, he has a writing duo behind this film that I'll start with, Ganglion. Now, he did 36 works, and I've only ever seen this one. He did two in genre. The other one was from 1957, which was The Giant Claw. I think this is like a flying dinosaur movie. I have not heard of this one, actually, but the poster looked pretty cool. Then over to Weisberg. I've only ever seen one of her 26. In genre, this was her first of three. She followed it up with Weird Woman and The Mummy's Ghost, which the latter I own but have not seen. Then I'll also give credit here to the writer of the original story of Crowley. This was the only ever work they've done. Then to the cast, I'll start with Zuko, who I feel like I've covered on here before. I have now seen nine of his 97. In genre, I've seen nine of his 17 for 52%. Then moving over to Bruce, I've seen two things with him in it. He did 53 pictures total. In genre, he has three, and I've seen two. I've seen The Smiling Ghost and then this. The only one I haven't is The Mummy's Ghost. Then over to Ankers. Another one that I've brought up before, I feel like, I've seen seven of her 52 for 13%. I've also seen seven of 10, 70%. In horror with, I have not seen Weird Woman, Captive Wild Woman, and Jungle Woman at this time. A lot of women's in the title there. She's also in The Invisible Woman. I also wanted to give some love here to Bay. He has 46 movies, and I've seen three. I've seen three of his eight horror movies. I've seen The Mummy's Tomb, this, and The Climax. I have not seen Captive Wild Woman, The Amazing Mr. X, and Possessed by the Night. And it looks like there's also two documentaries about 100 years of horror. There's a different, like, little thing that they're covering there, and I've not seen either of those either. So then, let's get in the movie here. We'll start with seeing a painting from the past. This is from South America. Dr. Alfred Morris, who is Zuko, is teaching a class and goes through how the natives who made the painting were the first to discover poison gas. The thought was that it was used for surgery, but it also could be channeling things happening in the Caribbean to create zombies. Human sacrifice might also be included. So then when the class ends, Dr. Morris wants his star pupil of Ted Allison, portrayed by Bruce, to stay back. Dr. Morris tells him about his plan for this break in school. He says he's going to go to South America to recreate the gas that he was lecturing on. He has already created it, though, in reality, and wants Ted to be his assistant in his experiment. Ted is studying to be a surgeon, and Dr. Morris could use his skills here. So Dr. Morris has assessed this on a monkey, and Ted examines the animal 
to uh, find out that it isn't dead. It is a form of suspended animation. Together they revive the monkey. Dr. Morris now wants to evaluate this on humans. I should point out that Ted is seeing Isabel Lewis, portrayed by Onkers. Now, she is studying music and sings on the radio. Eric Iverson, portrayed by Bay, plays the piano in accompaniment. Isabel is set to go on tour with Eric, so Ted is getting his time in with her before she leaves. Dr. Morris secretly has a crush on her, and he's picked up that she no longer loves Ted. Ted's a little bit dense, and he doesn't kind of pick up on it. I've been there. He encourages her to break off the engagement. He decides to help by experimenting on Ted. So this turns Ted into a ghoul that can use for his bidding. The problem is that the monkey reverts back to this ghoulish state and the cure that he has thought he has figured out isn't just that. Ted is in the state when Isabel leaves. When he comes out of it, he goes to her on her first stop of her tour. Now grave robbing and murder also follows her, a clue that the police pick up on. Dr. Morris is upset that Isabel doesn't love him and will do whatever he can to get her to. Ted also won't give up on her, but must find a cure before it's too late. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I love the concept of the creature here. I wrote a novel with my father called Ghouls. Now we are using that interchangeably with zombies. Before releasing the book, I discovered that ghouls are actually creatures that haunt graveyards. Since this film uses grave robbing as a major plot point to obtain an ingredient to revert the condition, or actually I mean even to put him in that condition as well, I love that Ted as this monster would be haunting graveyards. Thought it was clever. It also makes for a different type of zombie as well ahead of Night of the Living Dead being created. Where I'll go then would be the classic idea from the era. We have a mad scientist who loves the main woman. She just so happens to be engaged to be married to Ted. What I like here is that Isabel doesn't want to marry him anymore. She cares about him, but she has developed deeper feelings for Eric, and I get that she's in a tough spot. I love that this movie has her pursuing the relationship that she wants instead of just marrying Ted, which is more common. This is a solid representation of how a woman should be able to carry herself and her future. It's also quite interesting having Ankers and the Invisible Woman because that's something else there is we have a career woman who is fighting for her rights with her job and everything like that. So it seems like Ankers might have been either forward thinking or just lucked into these roles. The last bit for the story I want to go into though would be with Dr. Morris. He's a mad scientist. He's in love with this younger woman. I'd say that you can see a misogynistic angle here that is leading her to break it off with Ted for her own for his own selfish reasons. It does seem like the small goals with the breakthrough that he has, but I also get that if you fall in love with somebody, you'll do what you can to get with them. I'd say that Zuko is great as his villain. He doesn't play it over the top and that works. I'll shift over to the rest of the cast though as I thought that Bruce was good as our lead. He is madly in love with Isabel who doesn't feel the same back anymore. I like the growth of this character as well as how he portrays the ghoul. Ankers is solid as his modern woman. I did like how she was written as well to play this character. I've already said what I need to on Zuko. I like the small part that Bay plays here. Other than that, I thought that Armstrong, Stone, Tombs, and Hobart, and the rest of the cast were onto the out for what was needed. So all that's left before I do a little bit of trivia is going to be filmmaking. I thought that the change that was made for Ted was good. We don't necessarily get a transformation, but how that was handled works. The makeup on his face was good. I was actually convinced that this was played by Boris Karloff and was shocked to see that Bruce was in this makeup, so kudos there. That's the poster that was kind of drawing me in. The cinematography is fine. It doesn't necessarily stand out or hurt anything here. The same can be said for the soundtrack. I will give credit to the singing that Isabel does. It actually sounds like Anchors wanted to do it, but it was stock music instead. And I'll actually get into that for trivia, but that classifies this into music for what we hear with her. 
So since I've already been kind of bringing it up here a couple different times, what I was saying there is that Anchors wanted to do her own singing, but because the tight production schedule, producer Ben Pivar used stock recordings of Lillian Cornell for the scenes in which Anker's character sings, and the songs are obviously older recordings since the sound quality is inferior to the rest of the soundtrack. The Mad Ghoul was the last film of director Hogan, who finished the film in May. He ended up dying eight days before it was released on uh, November 12th, 1943. Isabel's song, Our Love Will Rise, uses the melody of Chokorovsky, I might be saying that wrong, Piano Concerto Number 1. Part of the original Shock Theater package of 52 Universal titles released to television in 57. That was followed a year later by The Son of Shock, which added 20 more features. This was the only Universal horror film that touched upon the subject of zombies. Kind of fun fact there. The publicity still featured Ankers and Bruce showed the titles of some other recent Universal horror movies, including Captive Wild Woman, but the title was erroneously given as Captive Wild Women. I've actually noticed I've gotten the, that mixed up in my head or like when I've been trying to talk to myself or write things down. Keen observers will notice Armstrong as a wisecracking news reporter back in 33. The actor had played a vital part in the phenomenal success of the original King Kong, so kind of a fun thing there. So then in conclusion, this is a solid early zombie film. It isn't one in the traditional sense, even for the era. I like borrowing the lore of a ghoul and using it here. There were elements of the Mad Scientist film that would be used much more in the following decade. I thought the acting from Bruce, Anker, Zuko, and even the small part by Bay drove this. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Other than that, this was made well enough. Special credit to the ghoul makeup and Anker's singing. Not a great film, but worth a viewing if you're a fan of the Universal Classic run. This is a non-franchise movie that is solid from them at this era. So my rating here for The Mad Ghoul is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff, if you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback, or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast-related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm DavidOSU87. On Threads, I'm DavidOSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing, like my ratings on, whatnot. I know for Letterboxd, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different, like, posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for Threads. And then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast-related different stuff over there. And for all of those, I will have the links in the show notes below. And I'll also say, if you also want to hear me, this podcast is streaming on Planet X Network, which is going to be on the blog post. You can go ahead and click into it there. Because, I mean, if you're listening about a podcast, I don't have it signed here. But just so you're aware, if that's another way you'd like to listen to it, as that is a – there's also some other fun shows that are on there as well. And actually, a new one to include is I have a channel over on the – actually, the Nightclub podcast – my boy T-Boo over there asked me if I would like to have my own little channel on the nightclubs Discord. So I do have a section over there if you want to join that. That link will also be in the show notes as well. So 
but anyways, for the next episode, going to be another Traverse of the Threes, as I don't have a list set up for 195, because so that's going to be the next episode. So what I'm going to end up doing is watching Captive Wild Woman. I thought I could watch this somewhere, but I ended up buying a box set on Blu-ray that featured that movie along with some other ones that I didn't own, so... That'll end up making it easier when I'm trying to watch some of those other ones at some point. But that'll be the 1943 film. And then what I'm going to end up doing for the new release, my goal is to go to the theater to see if I can watch Insidious, The Red Door, that new one. If I can't, I'll watch something that's on Shudder. Then for my old Traverse to the Threes movie, I'm going to also, for a rewatch, is going to be The Return of the Evil Dead. I actually watched it last night. Just haven't had a chance to get my thoughts down or anything like that. And then I'm also going to rewatch, I think Skinamarink is the only one that's available for a 2023 release that I have yet to give a rewatch to. That one, I, rating-wise, the first time, it didn't necessarily land in my usual threshold, but I digress there. So other than that, though, I will have more, you know, mini-reviews for you. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so I will say thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>